The rest of you take out your Bibles and turn uh, in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. I went to a great party, a great party, on Monday night. It was on the USS Yorktown. The bar was big, the food was delicious, the entertainment was wonderful, a little combo band and and three girls, pretty girls, singing those great songs from World War II. Amazing. But I wasn't an invited guest. I was uh, an interloper. I wasn't really part of the party. I had just gone there to see the show. And so all I did really in the course of the evening was observe. And I observed the ship itself. Have you been to the Yorktown? How many of you have been to the Yorktown? It is enormous, the sheer size of it. You know, it, it dwarfs you. But I also noticed that nobody was really paying any attention at all to the ship. They were talking and laughing and drinking, but no one seemed to notice the ship. All the planes that were lined up on on the deck where the party was going on. You know, how many bombs were dropped from those planes? How many shots were fired from them? There was a Medal of Honor museum there and a a whole wall listing the names of, of, of people who had given their lives valiantly to defend our country. But nobody was looking at those names. There was a little museum you could go in and watch a video about... Uh, the history of the ship, but nobody was watching that video either. No one was exploring the ship or looking around. No one was looking down at the, the tiles that were worn out from all the feet of the men who had lined up there three times a day to receive their food. No one was looking at the pictures on the wall of the men who served on that ship, and, and no one seemed to be thinking about how those men felt or what they feared as they lived on that ship, with kamikazes flying above them or into them, German U-boats beneath them. But no one seemed to notice. The ship just seemed to be a backdrop for their party, but that's okay, because that's why they were there. They were there to party, not to think about war and not to think about battles. But I kept thinking about it, and I kept wondering, what if those men had not fought? What if we had not won that war? What would have happened if our world had been led by a demented man like Hitler? And I thought about the thousands and the the tens of thousands of of innocent people who were told, go, go in that room and take a shower. And as they waited for the water to come out of the shower head, the gas that would kill them came out instead. And I thought about all the perverted and twisted Uh, medical and sexual experiments that Hitler commissioned and and used human beings to conduct. And I thought about how he never seemed to have any trouble finding people who were willing to to follow and carry out his commands. And then I thought, all of this chaos, all of this chaos that was taking place stopped fewer than 70 years ago. That's not so long. Here's that's Maury Cottle. Though he came of age, you know, late in that bout, still he served in that war. Lifetime. Here sits one among us. We often think that we are superior. 
to people of the Old Testament, the barbarians that live there who threw their children in the fire as sacrifice to the gods. But I'm absolutely confident that fewer children went to the fires as a sacrifice to the god Moloch than went into Hitler's furnaces. And not in a tribe or not in a third world country, but in a first class European city. But what does all this talk of battle have here on this beautiful day? It's a beautiful day, isn't it? In this beautiful city. Why? Just last October, Condé Nast magazine headlined this. Everybody loves Charleston. Voted USA's number one city for the third consecutive year. That's us. But you know what? That's nothing because the year before that, Charleston came in first place as the best city in the world. That's us. Why spoil the fun? You know, what place does talk of battles and death and chaos have here in the best city in the world? Why should we even think of disturbing topics like these? Well, let's see. If you have your Bible open, would you stand as we hear read together the word of the living God from Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Moses speaking to the people, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray again that your spirit would be the teacher among us. Open your word and the truth of it for our eyes to see and our hearts to understand. And Lord, as well as already prayed, always the prayer of our hearts is may we see the beauty of Jesus and the gospel here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. You may have noticed as I was reading that the passage before us this morning contains some of the most controversial themes in the book of Deuteronomy, and not just the book of Deuteronomy, but the the whole Bible. Themes that were lived out in real time among real people thousands of years ago as they stood at the edge of the promised land, ready to go into it. These same themes continue to challenge us today and and confuse us at times. Uh, The idea of election, of God choosing one nation, above all others. And that idea followed by its natural consequence in this passage, particularly the, the, the radical rejection 
of the other nations and the command here before us this morning to destroy them. This morning we only have time to consider one of these. It's going to be the second of the themes as we explore together uh, the battle that God commands here in this passage. And I don't want to go over ground that we've already gone over before. We talked a little bit about this in Deuteronomy chapter 2. If you want to go online, you can listen to that sermon from December uh, uh, 1st. But I want to add a few, a few more thoughts to that this morning. And and the first is this one. The, the destruction uh, that God calls for here in this passage is God's way of restoring order. It's God's way of injecting order back into chaos. That's what God's doing. Genesis chapter 1 says, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And verse 2 says that the earth was without form and void. And that word translated without form or formless uh, has the meaning of emptiness, of confusion, of chaos. The earth was void and empty. It was a wasteland. But how are you and I going to find words, a word, or even multiple words, to describe what was before God's creative acts. No human eye existed to see what was before God created out of nothing everything that is. And so attempting to imagine formless, empty, confused, chaotic nothingness is as close as you and I can come. But it doesn't really matter if we can't picture it. Because what was, was not what was to continue to be. Because what did God do? He spoke into that formlessness. God spoke into that chaos. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke into formlessness and chaos and confusion. And he brought order and structure and beauty and life. The morning and the evening, a day. The morning and the evening, another day. Day after day in regularity. You know, the the recent weather patterns have helped me. You know, just a small way understand what life might be like apart from the order of God. Last weekend, my sister-in-law lives in Dallas, Texas, and she sent two texts with a picture. The first text was of last Saturday. 85 degrees in Fort Worth. They were out doing yard work. Beautiful day. The next text was sent Sunday morning, and it contained a picture from inside a warm car because it was 24 degrees outside, and the picture was looking out over the snow and ice-covered hood of the car out onto a snow and ice-covered road. 12 hours, a 61 degree drop in the temperature. What if life was, if life was always like that for us? Just that random or even more random, more chaotic, never knowing what might happen from one hour to the next, never being able to depend on anything, never knowing whether you need a parka or your swimsuit, or maybe you would need both. How could you leave home without one? You might need a swimsuit in the morning and a parka by the evening chaos, but for God. And God spoke order into it, and God brought order morning and evening, day after day after day after day, sun, moon, and stars in their places. 
bringing a regular and structured and dependable world. That's God's creation. The scripture says that everything that God created was good because God is a good God of good order. And that's why we call him faithful. That's why we say he is trustworthy because he is unchanging. He is dependable. But then chaos entered the world again, this time in the form of sin. And left unchecked or left to run rampant, the only outcome of sin is chaos. We know that to be true. You and I have experienced that to be true. Sin brings turmoil and chaos. We can just take, for an example, from our own lives, a lie. Have any of you ever told a lie before? Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. Please, thank you. So we tell one lie, but then how many lies does it take to cover up that one lie? You know, maybe 10. But then you can't remember which lie you told to whom. And and since they are lies, you can't remember what you really told because it never happened anyway. And you can't remember how you told it. And so what's there? Confusion and turmoil, you know, within yourself and and in your relationships. And, And that's just with an example of a lie. Sin brings chaos. But God acts again and brings back order back into chaos. And he promises, as we know, in the garden, when sin entered the world, that one will come who will crush the head of Satan, the one who has introduced chaos into God's beautiful creation. And I don't want to retell the story of God in the Old Testament again. We did that last week a bit. But let's get back to the passage that's before us now. The destruction of these nations is bringing order into chaos once again, the, the seven nations listed in this passage were not living under the orderly, faithful, trustworthy, divine rule of God. So it's no surprise that their lives looked like chaos. Left on their own and left to their reprehensible practices, which did include, as I mentioned earlier, throwing their own children in the fire as sacrifices to angry gods. Left on their own these nations would have self-destructed, as would every nation who followed them in the path that they were traveling. But God, look, God, by bringing his people and his holy and divine word into their world is also bringing hope. Rescue is possible. Salvation is possible. Chaos and meaninglessness and formlessness and hopelessness does not have to be the sentence for the people of the world. Not where God sends his people with his word. And so the destruction of these people, who were self-destructing anyway, who had filled up the cup of God's wrath by their atrocities, demonstrates that God's salvation is on the move. God's salvation is on the move. A way of chaos, out of chaos exists. A way out of hopelessness exists. And beginning with these people and this nation, God demonstrates what he can and will do for the whole world. And so the destruction of these nations become, becomes a, a, a paradigm. God, by placing his people and his word where he wants them to be, will destroy chaos, emptiness, hopelessness, meaninglessness. And he will 
establish his kingdom and his rule on earth, wherever that is. Prayerfully France, through this couple that's going there very soon. Hope and life will be available for all who believe. That's the message. That's the story that God's telling through his people and through this command to destroy these nations. The, the, The message isn't about being an Israelite. The message is that you've got to have faith. The message is that you've got to live rightly and righteously before God. And that's the possibility, and that's the privilege that God extended to the nation of Israel and through them to the nations of the world. That's what God is after. Amos chapter 5, verse 24 says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God is after. Isaiah 51, verse 4, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way and my arm will bring justice to the nations. God's salvation is on the move to destroy chaos. Is that good news? Is it? You know, chaos doesn't give up easily. It doesn't give up without a battle. And the passage before us is one of confrontation. It's one of a clash. A clash that must happen every time that the order of God meets the chaos of sin. A clash. A clash that must happen every time that the life of God meets death. A clash that must happen every time the hope of God meets despair. A clash that must happen every time the freedom of God meets the the, the bondage of sin. Every time God's truth meets the lies of of Satan. Every time there's a clash. God has already reminded the people as they stand on the banks of the Jordan River, you shall have no other gods before me. God's reminded them, don't make any images. Don't bow down to worship any other God. God has already reminded them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If God allowed his people to live in a spiritual bubble, if God allowed his people to live in a spiritual greenhouse, then all of this would be easy. How easy it would be to love the Lord with all our hearts and to worship him only. But God isn't leading his people into a spiritual greenhouse, is he? He's preparing them to lead them into a land where they will encounter people who have other gods ahead of the one and only true and living God. And their eyes will see the idols that these people have made. And their eyes will watch them bowing down before them and crying out to them. And they will witness for their own selves the chaos of lives who attempt to please and appease their capricious, unfaithful, always changing God. And these are the people with whom God, God's people must do battle. And if they're going to win, they have to partner with God. And that's But the passage demonstrates that this battle that must take place, it's a partnership, a joint venture between God and his people. Look in verse 1. Look what the Lord will do. The Lord will bring his people into the land. The Lord will drive out the nations that are bigger and stronger. The Lord will deliver these seven nations into the hands of his people. That's the work of the Lord, done with the power of the Lord. But when the Lord has done these things, then he tells his people, now you Destroy them completely, smash down, tear down their idols. 
God's people are not passive in the battle. God gives his people an active role in the battle, in bringing order and rescue and salvation and restoration. God has called his people to battle. I'm reminded, you know, at this point of Jesus, when he was in the upper room with his disciples, on the last night of his life, sharing that last meal together. And he made them a promise. He, he promised them that he would send them the Holy Spirit. That he would not leave them alone. That he would not leave them as orphans. And then he said, I, I won't speak to you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. By the prince of this world, he was referring to Satan. And then Jesus says to his disciples, come now, let us leave. Come now, let us leave. And in the normal Greek usage of the phrase, it's this implication, come now, let us meet the advancing enemy. Come on, let's meet the advancing enemy. And so Jesus calls the disciples to go with him to meet the enemy. And he leads them out of the safety of that upper room. For now that Judas is gone, they all think alike. They all love alike. They all live alike. But Jesus leads them out of there into the night, into the darkness to meet the enemy. And they're going to meet that enemy on two fronts. Physically, Jesus is going to be arrested. Physically, Jesus is going to be beaten. Physically, Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross. Physically, Jesus is going to die. But the greater victory will be accomplished on a spiritual front. When Jesus stood strong against the temptations of Satan in the desert at the beginning of his ministry, Scripture says, when the devil had finished all his tempting... The devil left Jesus until an opportune time. And so I think Satan saw the cross as that opportune time. Weakened from a horrific beating, an excruciating nailing to a cross, maybe this would be the opportune moment that Satan would finally break Jesus. Finally win. This would be the moment when when Jesus would give up and give in and Satan would win the battle. And this may be the opportune time for chaos and sin and death to ascend the throne and to reign unchallenged forever. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know the rest of the story. We love the rest of the story. We are grateful for the rest of the story because there was not to be an opportune time for Satan. Never. He lost the battle. But it was a battle nonetheless. And that's what you and I can never lose sight of. Living here in the number one city of America. The battle can't just be for us an unnoticed backdrop to our comfortable lives. The battle is too great. From 12 noon till 3 o'clock in the afternoon on The day that Jesus was fighting the battle on the cross, darkness 
supernaturally fell on the whole land, not just a solar eclipse, no. A supernatural display pointing to the intensity of the battle against and the judgment of sin and death and chaos. And from the cross, Jesus cried out. Can you imagine? Crying out in a loud voice. And the agony that he was experiencing physically and spiritually, what must it have sounded like? And then Jesus gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the earth shook and the rocks split. What kind of of battle is this? What upheaval is is it bringing? Creation itself is experiencing the effects of the battle. So immense and intense was the battle. Then the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Can you imagine? Dead people coming up out of the ground, out of the the grave. I can't imagine it. But it's evidence that the victory of Jesus is certain. The earth had to open up and give up the dead people it held, because death has no hold on those who belong to God. Death has no hold on those who belong to God. God's new order is here. At creation, God spoke order into chaos. At creation, God spoke life into chaos. But through sin, chaos chaos fought back and, and brought death. But on the cross, Jesus brought back the life of God and the order of God. Why? All of these dramatic displays around the crucifixion of Jesus... Because a greater battle has never been fought. Greater battle has never been fought. Never a battle of such immensity and intensity. And perhaps all of these uh, physical displays will impress on us, even 2,000 years later, the immensity and intensity of the battle. Maybe it will bring into balance or bring a little bit of balance to those who think Christianity is sweet or tame or a nice addition to a nice life in the suburbs or in the greatest city in America. But cries of agony, a sun gone dark, earthquakes, splitting rocks, they tell a different story, don't they? of a battle that is real. And so we look at passages like the one before us this morning in Deuteronomy 7. And we remember that in the Old Testament, God is acting out. Acting out in the physical world what is taking place in the spiritual. Jesus did something else with his disciples in the upper room on that last night. And what he did was he prayed for them. And this is part of what he prayed for them. He says, Father, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. And none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. See, Jesus is looking beyond his work on the cross. Beyond the moment when from the cross he would cry out, it is finished, because it is finished. Nothing more needed to be done. 
to secure salvation for you and for me and for the world. It's finished. The battle's been won. But by the will of God, time goes on and we live on until the moment when Christ returns. And we don't live in a spiritual bubble. We don't live in a spiritual greenhouse. We live in the world. And while time is going on, and while we are living on, all of us are in a very real battle, a spiritual battle that has physical manifestations. There are places all around, all around Charleston, all around America, all around the world, Europe, places that need the order of God. They need the rescue, salvation of the gospel. Places, even in a beautiful city like Charleston, where chaos and confusion and meaninglessness and emptiness reign. The gospel has the power to destroy those places, places to to, to smash them, to break them down, and to bring into those places the order and the rule of God. I bet there are places in your life. I know there are places in your life. And in my life where chaos continues to reign. Areas in our life where there is confusion and chaos because sin dwells there. Where are those places? Places that we don't allow the gospel to go or to enter to destroy that chaos. And as always, whether in the Garden of Eden or on the banks of the Jordan River or at the cross of Christ or in your neighborhood, or in your living room, chaos doesn't give up easily. doesn't. doesn't give up without a fight. And that's why you and I, even on a pleasant day like today in a beautiful city like Charleston, must think about the battle. If the battle were not real, why would Jesus pray for the protection of his disciples? What is the protection that he seeks? It's not from physical harm. It can't mean that. If it meant that, Jesus' prayers were ineffective because they weren't protected physically. All of the apostles, with the exception of John, were martyred. They were uh, gone through with the sword or drugged through the streets or crucified upside down. That's what happened to them. The protection for which Jesus prays must be the protection of the soul. The protection of the soul in the midst of the battle because that's what Satan is after. The evil one. He wants the soul. He wants to destroy everything physical and spiritual, and he does it by, by deceiving us into thinking that this physical stuff feels good and is good, and actually it's destroying us. But ultimately what he wants, what he wants is our eternal soul. That's the trophy that he seeks. And that's what Jesus prays protection over. And the good news is that God does keep and protect us. That's why Jesus prayed here, none has been lost. None has been lost. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of them that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. That's the truth. So we don't need to worry about the battle. We don't need to be afraid about the battle because we are safe. We are safe. We are secure in the hands of our father. That's the good news. But you and I, we need to acknowledge the battle. It can't just be an unnoticed backdrop all around us. The signs of it are all around us, but we eat and we drink and we party and we live on. No, the battle is a very real part of the life 
of every believer in Christ. There's chaos to be destroyed. In the lives of others, in the lives of people we love, there's rescue, there's salvation, and it's available to them. There's order and there's peace that they can experience. And so you and I do battle for them on their behalf because we love them. We fight for ourselves with the Lord. Lord, you and me together, we're going to work together, we're going to battle together in my own life, in my own heart. And Lord, till all that chaos is gone, till it's destroyed, until the peace and the order of God are, are injected, by the power of the gospel into every part of our lives. Your life as a party, as a believer, isn't a party, okay? Your life, my life as a believer, it isn't a party. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. It is full uh, of meaning, but it isn't a party. It is a battle, and we are on the winning side. The celebration, it's coming. It is going to be huge. The celebration is coming. The battle's going to be over, and the party is going to be huge. But for now, you and I, we fight on, we battle on, so that more and more people will be part of that celebration with us. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, for for the story that we see in picture form, you, you doing physically what you are... Even more importantly, doing spiritually. Lord, our physical bodies are for a brief time on this earth. But Lord, our our souls, our spirits are uh, eternal, immortal, destined to an eternity with you in heaven or an eternity separated from you in hell. And that's the battle, Lord. And so I pray that you would uh, sober us where we need to be sobered. That you would discomfort us in the areas of our lives, especially our Christian lives, where we're too comfortable. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up and open our eyes to see the reality of the battle that's going on around us, and not allow it to be a pleasant backdrop from which we are disengaged or which we are are just an observer. Lord, it's real in our lives, and I pray that you would help us do battle with the gospel in every part uh, of our world, home, neighborhood, office, school, wherever. Lord, through the power of the gospel, and as we speak and live out the gospel, may your truth and your peace be interjected into that chaos. For our own lives, Lord, work with us as we continue to uh, depend on you and your grace uh, to continue to clean us up and make us whole. Uh, and to drive away the chaos and to replace it with your peace. Lord, help us be people who battle on uh, in your name for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.